On this week's Bet the Process podcast, Rufus and I actually discuss another person's podcast. They probably have more than seven listeners. So maybe all seven of you can go over and listen to that podcast. But we talk about the Circles Off Berry Horse episode. And then uh, we talk a little college basketball with a repeat guest, Jordan Majeski. And then we actually give some picks. So with that, let's start the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Bet, 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 bet the process. Welcome to the podcast. Bet the process. It's not that typical cookie cutter nonsense. If you came just for picks, you're in the wrong place. Find a talent with the narrative to make a strong case. Instead of blindly assuming a team must be tanking, we're looking for the edge of Massey Peabody rankings. Crunching all the numbers in a simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. Welcome to another episode of the Bet the Process podcast. Well, Rufus and I are already arguing. We were arguing off air, um, and I just kept yelling at him to start the podcast because he sent me a text message yesterday asking me to listen to this Circles Off podcast with Barry Horse. You know, and Rufus takes marginal interest in the podcast typically, and especially the subject matter of the podcast. So for him wait, wait, to actually take marginal the initiative- interest in what? In our oh, podcast. This pod- oh, I thought oh, you, you never listen to podcasts, podcasts in generally. You, you don't I, listen to podcasts. I don't listen to a lot of sports podcasts. Anyways, the point is he's very interested in talking about this. And we were arguing about this, and we should try to do this in somewhat of a structured conversation. So our friends at Circles Off, I would consider Rob Pizzola a friend, although people ask me why I don't like Johnny, and I've I've really never met him or don't really know him. I know we've been on some things together, seems like a delightful human. Um he and we've we've actually done a couple calls on BetStamp where I've tried to help him think a little bit about his product from a technology standpoint. So also, but, Jeff, most people most people think that you don't like them initially. It's fair. I feel like it's it fair. takes you time. It takes you time to warm up to people. I'm I'm you are I got two you're, sides you're initially to me. skeptical of people. I would say. I got two sides to me. Either I'm in a very friendly mood and I'll be very friendly, or I will be very skeptical. And and the people that eventually get to know me realize that about me, right? So, right. And I, but, I think Jeff, when people get, when you get, so when when I get Jeff's attention, when someone gets Jeff's undivided attention, it's very powerful. And I think yeah. everybody loves it. Yeah. Thanks. I appreciate that. Okay. So back to this whole concept. And like Rob Pizzola, we've talked about. It. I always thought he, I didn't like him, and so uh, the. The podcast obviously circled off is great podcast. They're doing incredibly well. You know, they they I've listened to it a few times, and um, they have Barry Horse on, and and he is this. What's interesting is they never really talked about like wasn't there a whole scandal with Barry Horse that that happened for a while? I so he had a bad 2019, I believe, baseball betting season, and I believe what happened was he tried to partner with a lot of people to scale, to get down more. I remember they, they, it was him and and some guys in Costa Rica, I think. Um, and so I think a lot of people thought it was a scam. I don't think it was, but I think it was in essence, another way of trying to get down more, but while also having him help out these people on Twitter, because he kind of got, he became well-known because he posted picks on Twitter in the 2018 baseball betting season um, that did very well. And so I think when he said he was leaving to go work for people offshore um, to bet like a big group of betters, um, there was some blowback and he wanted to try to include everybody 
he wanted to try to include some of these people, but it ended up not working out well, but I don't think it was, I don't think it was bad intentions. I mean, all I know is that there was a period of time where there was a lot of anti-Barry horse stuff and, and regard, irregardless well, of any I mean, of there's, that. There's anti-everybody stuff in the Seville community. No, this wasn't just the Seville stuff, dude. This was like, re- this was, I won't get into it because okay. it's not, but there was a lot of people being like, what the hell is going on with this guy? Right. For a little while. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm, maybe I'm re- misremembering, but let's not, let's not talk about that. This was a long time. This was like, this was, this happened like right after the Schwimmer stuff. I mean, I feel I feel like this was like a very exciting time in gambling Twitter. This wasn't just gambling Twitter though. Let's be, let's be fair. Okay. This is not just like people making fun of you for all of a sudden selling picks on unabated. There was like a bunch of stuff going on. So I'm selling pictures on unabated picks, picks, nudies, 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 picks, picks. Anyways, irregardless of one of this, the, the crux of the conversation on this podcast, and you need to guide this where you want to go based on what you want to talk about. But essentially the, the, the fundamental conversation about the market closing line value, because one of the big issues that people had when Barry Horse was posting is that, you know, he would post these edges and the edges were often like 10% or whatever. They were, they were just way off what market price was. Which would get probably widely panned by Seville people because they're like, there's no way these edges are that big. Not just Seville. Rufus, you got to stop like putting this in the Seville bucket. Like there are many people in the world that don't believe that the, you know, you could have a model that is consistently 10%. Like, like you've said that before, like if your model is that far off, like you don't necessarily believe it's going to work, right? Like there's a problem. I don't don't believe it's going to return that, but, but it depends on if it's, is it 10, is it showing 10% edges regularly or is it an occasional 10% edge? But my models, Jeff, my models show, I mean, I show freaking eighty percent edges some weeks on golfers because if you think, I make a, do you think that Barry Horse regresses to the market? Uh, I don't know if he did or not in that, but and, and so I think that's a big thing right there. If he's not regressing to the market and, and he's spitting but out like his from his, his philosophy number, right? then then that ten percent edge is not necessarily ten percent. It's so the, smaller, the, philo- but the it philosophy how much there. The market. If you listen to his philosophy, right? My guess is that he does not regress anything to the market. That he makes his bets based on what his model says, based on what the edge is, and then he. Just I would guess the there's back testing and stuff, so I don't I don't know the answer to that question. I would have to go back through his Twitter in 2018 to have a good idea, but 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 I don't so, think that's specifically that important in relation to what we want to talk about. Okay, well, what do you want to talk about? I wanted to talk about market efficiency, and I thought his point was interesting and good. The fact that the line, it, the closing line isn't correct. It's wrong. And it is, but it's the closest thing most people have. Right. And so every model I've built, Jeff, like our, well, actually, I didn't build the college basketball model, but the college basketball model has predicted power against the closing line. Like my major league baseball model that I bet for a decade had predicted power against the closing line. I would regress, I believe I regressed like 60% to the closing line. But I still expected the the true number to be forty percent my number and sixty percent closing line, and that was it. Probably was a little bit less than that long term. It was maybe more like sixty five percent closing line, thirty five percent if you look out of like at the actual stuff. I bet, but but 
that right there tells you the market isn't 100% efficient. You, there's people beating closing lines. I've every single model I've ever built, I I tested against the closing line, and for it to be good, it needed to show significant predictive power against the closing line. So the fact that I know this, I have this model, means that for me, the closing line isn't the most important thing. It's a combination of the closing line and my number. Um, it's like so saying I don't, okay, I don't a good understand. example. Okay, my point is, but I don't. But you don't have I don't that information. Why that's interesting. We've, okay. we've said this, but we've we, said this, we said this on this podcast forever, right? We've talked about how the closing line has predictive value, but like ultimately, and I think what I what we were arguing it has, about it has value. Yeah. It has value, but about, that value isn't the end all be all unless you don't have a model yourself and you don't have better information because the closing line is not the end all be all. So what we were arguing about off air is how interesting like his statements were. And I think what bothered me about the, the you know, I, I thought the podcast was interesting. I listened to it. I listened to the whole thing. Like it was a long podcast. Uh, but, you know, what bothered me, it, he's obviously a very smart, smart guy, is he was overcomplicating to me this whole argument ultimately by turning it into philosophical quantum mechanics and like blah, 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 and uncertainty and, you know, all these different principles and whatnot. Um, when the reality is this, you know, betting lines are markets, right? Markets tend towards efficiency, but markets are only as efficient as the information that's in the market. If the markets don't have certain information or certain analysis, then there will be opportunities for inefficiency in them. And if he has an approach or that's different, that's taking like there's information asymmetry, the first yes. thing. And just think about like, the evolution of, let me finish. Just yeah, okay. calm down for a second. Okay? I put my hand in the air. I know. Just a calm finger. down for a second. Okay. So just think about the evolution of sports betting markets, right? There were, they they were very dumb at first, right? And all yeah, of a sudden you, when you had different approaches based on different data or different computers. forms of analysis or computers or whatever, they became more efficient, right? Yes. And yes, it's it's believable to me that there are still inefficiencies, right? And and you know that we you and I talked about it. We were I worked on a baseball model with a guy that's like a was a PhD in you know air astro, like a literal rocket scientist, and we were doing all sorts of things on you know launch angles and you know all that kind of stuff and simulating out games and whatnot. And you know like Barry Horse kind of alluded to some of that stuff as reasons that he thought he was getting an edge with this whole idea of like you know like being able to control contact and things like that. Um, but like, again, like it's not over that complicated in my mind. It's like you have, you know, betting lines are these markets. They're, they're, they're not just, they're not like this mythical thing that we need quantum physics right. to understand. They are but a market of people making decisions and they are a, the, you know, you have this concept of the wisdom of the crowds but they're only as efficient as the information that's in them and the people that are acting. And yes, there are going to be inefficiencies at times. I I agree. And so I think, I, I do think that the CLV conversation gets overblown in a way. I mean, if you look at like right angle sports, they're very sharp, but they, I, they clearly, I mean, when lines move off their releases, they move too far. And I do believe we've, I found many examples this year where we were, we took the other side afterwards because we thought it's through the market, 
it, it made the market less efficient in a way. You know, he might have had a 54% play, but it moved three points and suddenly we have a nice play on the other side. And so um, markets do overmove. But the whole idea of getting good closing line value, uh, the, the reason that's considered a good thing is because it means that there is other presumably sharp money that agreed with you. There's other sharps that agreed. And so, and, and they're presumably having similar information to you and similar processes, um, or maybe having different processes and coming to the same conclusion. But if you have info that nobody else has, why would you expect other sharp groups to move the same way, to, to, to come to the same conclusion or to believe that the, the number is fundamentally mispriced in the same way? So, I mean, and the same applies to if you are extracting alpha in a different way, um, if you have a different process than anybody else does, if you're analyzing things in a, in a different way, then you're not, you're, unless you're creating your own closing line value by moving the market yourself, then you shouldn't be getting closing line value. And it also shouldn't be a cause for concern. And so a good example of this is, is the college basketball we bet this year. Um, we didn't start the season very well and we were getting, you know, the market was moving a little bit towards us, but not, we weren't, we were not beating the no vig close. Um, and we kept going despite the fact that we were struggling because we weren't expected to lose a lot. We were expected to lose like maybe a quarter of a percent to the no vig close. Um, but we turned things around and we ended up doing, doing very, very well for the season. And it, and we eventually stopped tracking closing line value. Um, there didn't seem to be much relationship there. And obviously that's even thousands of bets in a season. That's doesn't tell you that much, but, but the bigger point was that I think we were and are doing things differently than anybody else out there. And so why should I expect the market to necessarily, to, to always move our direction? Um, I don't, so the, I don't think is, there are other groups. I don't think there are other groups doing the same things. Exactly. Rufus, you're, yeah, you're making the same point over and over again, which is like yeah. if you have an approach that's different or information that's different than anyone else in the market, again, like but, it's okay. just like the, the can I, say, I think go ahead. Wait, wait. Okay. So you know what Spanky always says about how like betting the NFL on a Sunday is I don't know, you might as well be flipping a coin. But with the information Spanky has, you might as well be flipping a coin. But right. But if you have but, but that's not the case for everybody. But so so that's you are point. you are I think you are missing the point of this the I point am? of this is the overall size of these markets and the amount like for if you if you think about the wisdom of the crowds the reason the wisdom of the crowds works is because there are a lot of people with a lot of different information a lot of different approaches to that information a lot of different analysis and if you have a truly liquid market a big market not necessarily just liquid but big like a lot of different opinions that's when the market becomes very smart right and what, so, so what, let, let me, let me finish. No, that, I, okay. And so one of the, one of the valid points that I think they made on the podcast or that, that, um, Barry horse made is that these are not very big markets. Like the fact that you or I can move a market means that it's not that big, right? Like, it's like, there's not that many. And like the fact that you as an individual can find someone on Twitter and have an approach that's different than other approaches, and therefore you can win and beat. The, this is the this is not a very big market. Now that's different when you talk about the NFL on Sunday, because that tends to be a much bigger market. And the 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 idea that you could find an approach or information or data that isn't incorporated into that market to me, I'm skeptical of that. Okay, I want to I want to ask a follow up question and use a different market. I want to use the political prediction market, and the price on 
Biden in, let's say, early December, late November, where you were getting, you, you were buying Biden essentially at 90 cents. So you were, what, laying, I don't know, somewhere in the minus 800, minus 900 range. I don't know what books we're offering exactly. But that is a, to me, that's an example of a market that is pretty big, right? Well, this is like, we've had and this argument. very had inefficient. This, you've had this, this argument is, with this Nate, Silver, Nate Silver, right? Thing, yes. right? But yes. I think I'm I mean, gravitating I don't know how a little big, more I towards honestly, Nate's side on this. I mean, not all the way, but but I do think. Sure. But the, like, that's the point. Like, you don't, like, we don't, like, okay. It, you know, there, there, there is a book that was written, right, in the, I don't know, early 2000s called The Wisdom of the Crowds by James Sirwicky, right? And it talks all about this concept it. of prediction markets. It talks all about, like, and, and Sirwicky is, like, loves to bet, loves to bet college basketball. I was at March Madness with him because he was writing an article about pro trade, the uh, the thing I did with with Kearns. And he was there like sweating college basketball games. It was awesome. Anyway, so you go back to this idea of of wisdom of crowds, right? And you know, it is a very you know interesting concept, right? But like any of these books written by you know any of these guys that are coming, it's 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 much more in theory than it is in practice, right? Because you know a lot of the markets that we're talking about tend to not necessarily be maybe as efficient as we would like because of different reasons, right? And in this case, you and Nate have had this conversation about why the political betting markets are not super informed markets for, for different reasons. And like, I think well, it would be interesting- it's because they're not informed participants and they're emotional participants in them. Sure. And so there's not- But, the, but one would call that- People doing real analysis. One and would so, call that an, an inefficient market, right? Yeah, and so same in sports too, I'd say. Okay. So again- this is like the reason that we're having an argument essentially that I think you and I agree about, right? We're not, we're not disagreeing. And I think like you as an individual have come much more to the, and I think some of it's been guided by what happened in college basketball with you this year well, have come much more to this my whole career. I know, but you've been, I've definitely been like, remember back in the, like they use that example of TCU Georgia, right? The championship game. They did, yeah. And you and I had a debate about that on this podcast about like basically saying like I was like your numbers nineteen like this line's off right like this it does seem like it's off and there was a lot of respect that you had for the market at that time right and I think your opinion towards the market is starting to not necessarily it like we can no, go back there, and there play were other there were other quant systems out there that had very different numbers than mine. So Fair. that you did, it was you did more mention, that. You did mention if, that. If, if the other systems were all on the same side as me, then I would have probably felt a little differently. But clearly, clearly there was but something if the that other systems were seeing that were, I wasn't. Rufus, if the other systems were all aligned with you, the line would not have been would not have been 12 and a half or 13. It would have been maybe higher. not. I mean, it's yeah. not like those systems were necessarily influencing the market, but they weren't much. You don't think yeah, maybe I don't know. So do you agree with them that if that game, and I guess like it's kind of a weird world to that's think a, about, right? That's a, it's weird, a, because it's, you an, don't it's know. an impossible, it's an impossible world to think about that game being played and then you setting a new line for it in a week. So it's a kind of a dumb analogy, to be honest. But here's the thing. I mean, there's what there, there's different sources of uncertainty. 
right? There's essentially a change in fundamentals and a change in there. There's the randomness of the way the ball bounces and all that other stuff. But then there's also just error in your estimate of a team. And so basically what we're getting at here is that based on that result, we're saying the, our, our, the way we valued the teams was fundamentally pretty far off. But again, it's easy to say that after the fact. Well, that's the thing. Like when I heard that, to be honest, I was like, oh, that's really interesting observation. But now that you and I are arguing and talking about it, I'm like, is it really that interesting an observation? Like, I think the more interesting question would be like going back, like kind of knowing how that game played out, how much would you adjust each team's power rankings based on that game? And therefore, how much would that line adjust based on those power rankings? Because it, it shouldn't really be like, because that's like, you're basically- it be six points different. You're basically, hand, you're basically handing- them recency bias in a nutshell and saying like, okay, we're going to move this based on recency bias. So like, what, what would you like? I mean, I, I know like just back in the envelope, what would you say you would adjust that was, you I know, would probably that thing was like, thir- let's say that thing closed 13 and a half. What would you, what would you adjust it to? So first off, I didn't run the numbers. Like, I don't even know what the stats were and how thorough beating it was versus how much was just less predictive stuff. But I would guess maybe Georgia would improve by two points or something like that at most. And TCU would fall by maybe two to three points at most. Like I would say the biggest adjustment would be, I, I couldn't see an adjustment of more than four to five points. And that's, I think it that's would be, the high bound. I think it would be less than that though. It probably. would be above 14 and it would probably be less than 17. If you think about the bookends of that. Right. But remember, I mean, my number was higher than the market to begin with, but I think what I matters mean, more is just the difference than the number than that they were saying 21, like, no way. I mean, no, no one's no, no one's posting twenty one on that based on one game, right? I don't, I don't think. But again, like this is that whole weird, like that's that's not really how this plays out, right? So, anyways, uh, uh, any other thing? Like, I think another interesting thing that they talked about in the podcast was this idea, and this is like a a surfer's paradox. Also, one of the things that that surfers believe is that there's like a finite amount of waves, and like the reason that like surfers like kind of are territorial over surfing is because they like feel like there's a finite amount of waves. I talked to my brother-in-law about this. A who finite amount of waves. It's more just that there's, well, I mean, there's an infinite number of waves, but there's a, fi- there's a finite amount of time you have to catch the waves. Irregardless of the reasoning surfers are territorial over other people surfing. Yeah. And I think and, the experience is better if you're not fighting somebody for a wave, if you get the wave. And, and surfers are sometimes less inclined to have other people to introduce other people to surfing because okay. they believe that there is a like finite opportunity to catch good waves. How, how's that? I know where you're going. Sound? Yep. I think I and know so, where you're going here. And so they're protective of their spots. And this, this notion is similar in sports betting. And I thought that was an interesting analogy was this idea of how protective people are of their spots and their edges and like this finite amount of pool, this finite pool. And like, you know, I think Barry horse obviously has been burned by a little bit of this. And so he's like reflecting on that, but the idea, and I know, I know this is a subject that's sort of near and dear to your heart. is like, why can't we support each other more in this industry versus constantly taking each other down? Right. Well, I think that I thought what Barry horse said at the end um, about humility and growing from and how if you are if you're up on your high horse and you think you're better than everybody else you're never going to improve either and i think that's i think that's true and i think you do 
I've learned so much from other people in this industry. I would never have gotten to where I'm gotten, I've gotten by myself um, without having conversations with people, without listening and being open-minded. And I feel I, like you and Barry Horse should go on a Raya date together or maybe like a hinge date or something. Do you think you guys would match? It would, be, it would have to be a golf date, though. He's, he's a very good golfer. Yeah. I mean, you could... Uh, Cause I feel like you have like some similarities, like the whole, like he gets up, works out, meditates, although he seems very, his, his life seems structured, He's probably a lot more structured than me. where your life is just not structured at all. No. You come home from your Raya date at like, you know, whatever, 2am or 4 I didn't get onto Raya. Oh, really? I, like, I haven't updated. I, my Instagram was protected and I don't, I don't do Instagram. I do Twitter. I haven't, I haven't posted on Instagram since 2018. Well, maybe you need to start posting so you can get on the Raya. That's, that's yeah, really, maybe I'll that's have to be like, isn't everybody, the, follow, everybody follow me on Instagram so I can get under Raya. Isn't that where the cool kids are at? I don't, these I don't days? know. I don't know. Okay. Anything else you I want to talk much. about this Barry Horse thing before we bring Jordan Majeski in to talk a little college basketball? Oh, tilted moment. Um, oh, there was mine's obvious. Mine was there were so many tilted mine moments. Was the, I feel mine like. was the Texas meltdown that was happening as my son James's sixth birthday party was happening and just left me in a foul mood for, for, uh, James's birthday. But, um, I still managed to pull through with the help of some wine. I mean, so mine was probably just, well, actually apparent this, I wasn't super tilted over this, but we apparently had a bet last night on a college basketball game. Oh, between yeah, you Wisconsin did. I know I was, I was tilted on that too. North Texas. There were 70 points scored in the first half and the total was like one fourteen and a half, one fifteen. And it was one four. It was one. It was. It got as low as one fourteen. Yeah, believe me, so, I can tell you this one. So in agonizing were, they, all, all, all they need was nine points in the final nine minutes of the game, or something like that, and it did not. Ha- it, and they did not come through, or, or well, there was no, yeah, so, or something so like that. Wisconsin was, did not score in the final nine minutes of the game, and the other they team needed, scored it, what? They needed something like eleven points in the last like 12 minutes it was like a crazy it was a crazy ridiculous it was number. like a it was a 99 percent probably and i was like, actually watching like honest. i was i was sweating the game on my phone and felt pretty confident that we were going to lose even when we were in a great position to win because i i texted your brother and i said we're gonna like with about five minutes left to go in the game i go we're gonna need wisconsin to probably score again to win this and you i was thinking to myself, a lot of i don't know if they can um it was it was uh yeah that was that was pretty tilted but you weren't even paying attention so you can't even call no it I, I i i was not i was not at my i was i was out to dinner and then drinks so yeah after but my tilt i i got home so i got back to new york a day what what was it maybe it was approximately 31 hours after i boarded my flight on monday um, we went out, we taxied out. They said, oh, our plane is overweight. Like we had to go back and then we taxi out again. They apparently, the wind changed. They had to change the runways and they said, oh no, now we're significantly overweight for this new runway. We come back. Um, they're trying to get a new plan together, blah, blah, blah. Some of the people are like, I want to get off the plane because I'm going to miss my connection in, to Tel Aviv or whatever. Um, the flight attendants then end up it, like their time is up. You know, you can only yeah. work so many hours straight and they wouldn't I've, be able to, you, you know, I've been you, you know this, about that. Jeff. I've been you know about this. that. It's right. Just, so, so then, then we, end, I can't yeah, wait so, to announce our new sponsor United airlines. So uh, actually, so this was Delta, but, but then, um, so then 
it turned our they did they moved the flight to the next morning and put us up in an airport hotel and of course it takes like two hours for a shuttle to come and take us there and all that stuff but um but you know they gave us like a dinner voucher and uh, they didn't pretend it was the weather or anything it was totally their fault and they owned up to it so i liked that and 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 actually they gave me like I got an email today saying they deposited 17,000 miles as a thank you or for my patients. So, but I did, I was stuck on this plane, Jeff, for, we were sitting there for four to five hours on Monday before we actually were able to get off of it. I had a book that I had already finished. I had an outlet that didn't work. I didn't have data on my phone because I was only using Wi-Fi and there was no Wi-Fi on board. And the video screen for everybody and the whole thing was broken. So literally there was, there was literally nothing to do because I couldn't, my computer had, had, I'd run it all the way down. Um, yeah. Okay. Should I say this before we, should I, oh, I guess this is, well, this isn't really related to what we were talking about before about the, my, my little theory about variants. Should we save that for another time? Uh, sure. Let's let's save that for another time. I I, okay. I do want us to both summarize real quickly because I think we had a lot of scattered thoughts on this whole whole thing, and I have a summary, and then maybe you can provide it. And my summary is literally that what you know the 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 podcast which you asked me to listen to, like the the sort of takeaway for me at least was this idea of you know people overcomplicating the concept of the closing line value or, or markets generally, or the betting, it's not some mythical thing, right? It's, it's people betting into it and understanding the people that are betting into it. And like, to the point, like where stanky spanky, I think really is, is strong. Spanky. It's, it's spanky. I know you it's said understanding, stanky. it's understanding, you know, where, wh why the market is moving the way it is. Right. Because your point on right angle, I think is, is dead on, right? Like there's no way, you know, like I, I've seen some of your college basketball stuff. And even when you guys are off market, you know, there's very few of your games where if the line moves five or six points that you're not, no, no longer that you're going to still see an edge. Right. Like there's, there's, it's, yeah. it's rare that that will ever happen. And, you know, in, in the case of, again, like um, right angle, like the, the, the market causing the market to move that much manipulates the market in a way that, it's no longer maybe the best predictor, right? And it, again, it's because a person, one person had an, one person's opinion had a disproportionate amount of uh, impact on the actual, like what the market did. So again, like there's not like, you don't have to explain this with like uncertainty principles and like all this kind of stuff. It, it's a market. It's a bunch of people making decisions and weighing in with their opinions. And with that, you need to understand like what it means. And, and yes, there are many times when it is a good approximation of what the true line should be or of what the you know outcome looks like or whatnot. But there are often times or there are times when it isn't for different reasons but, that we've talked about. Right. My summary is it all, it all depends on the information you have, how efficient a market is. If it's, I'm going to give a very bad example, but think about a coin. It's 50-50, right? But maybe there's some superior being that created the entire universe that knows absolutely everything and knows whether it's going to be heads or tails before you flip it. I don't know. That's very possible. But with the information I have, it's it's an 50-50 it, is a very is, is a perfectly efficient price. 
And no, that doesn't mean it's going to land half heads and half tails, Jeff. No. <laughs> um, I, love, that means- I, know, I know you love your head, your um, coin analogy. Okay, yeah. let's welcome but, in. Good. No, that's that's all I was saying, that, that it's, it depends on the information you have. And so it can be, you can have weak form market efficiency. Um, Not just the information though, your approach to, to interpreting that information. Yes. Right? Like the, a market is based on the, inf- the participants and the, the opinions of the participants. The sophistication and the, like by information, I mean like output of a model, that's information. So. Right. But I, yeah. I, I guess like the thing for me is like, I think people need to understand where inefficiencies in a market or differing opinions come from. Right. And they come from things as simple as like information asymmetry, meaning like, I know, like in the example of that golfer that we found out that was, you know, sick and wasn't playing well. And we were like, you know, we, we made a decision based on that. And that was information that probably nobody had. Right. And if nobody had that, then why would you wouldn't expect to get closing line value? A hundred percent. Yeah. Right. hundred percent. Doesn't, it but doesn't like, mean, Oh, I didn't get closing line value. This must've been a bad bet. No. Yeah. Okay. Uh, we're gonna welcome in Jordan Majeski to talk a little college basketball. And then Rufus and I'll talk to you on the other side. We now welcome in Jordan Majeski. This is like kind of a very a first one. I actually pronounced his name correctly. Cause now I know how to do it. And two, um, we have a repeat guest from one week to the next. We've had repeat guests before, but I don't know if we've ever had one consecutive weeks, but we thought since Jordan did such a good job talking through the matchups last week, it would be good to have him back on um, given it's probably the last time we'll talk about college basketball for almost a year. So we might as well really, really get into it. Um, A few macro level questions before we get into the matchups that I'm interested in. And Rufus kind of added one, you know, we watched this Miami performance against Texas and obviously it was very impressive given Texas's sort of veteran nature and not a team that you think would fold quite like that. And I, I kind of give a lot of um, credit to Miami in that versus really feeling like Texas like folded. Um, but does, does this sort of mean that Miami underperformed all season? Um, did they, or, and, and sort of why are their metrics um, so low compared to sort of what they've seemingly played like the last at least two games? Yeah, that's a fair question. I mean, uh, you know, a lot of it just comes down to they are elite at putting the ball in the basket, you know, which is a lot of what basketball comes down to. And sometimes during the regular season, you know, the grind of the regular season, you just have off shooting nights or whatever. There was a stretch where I don't think this was very well publicized that um, Wong had a serious sinus infection and you saw a dip in his numbers. I'd have to look up exactly when it was, it was, I think in January, early or mid January where he really struggled and he was saying that he couldn't sleep at night. And I think that really affected their play for a stretch. He was actually very sick. And um, I think then he had some, you know, that got corrected one way or another and they kind of took off from there. But um, yeah, I mean, there were, there was a, it's not like the ACC was a dominant league. You'd think a team like this would have, you know, clearly risen to the top throughout the course of the regular season, but there were some weird circumstances that prevented them from fully dominating in that league. Did they have moments of dominance like this during the regular season? Yeah. I mean, you know, um, there was that must win game for North Carolina where I think everyone and their mother was on North Carolina that game and Miami just came out 
and whipped them in the second half. And that's kind of when you saw that this team has a different level offensively that a lot of the ACC teams did not have. Um, so yeah, you know, there were, there were glimpses of it and, you know, they did this last year. They went to the elite eight and, um, you know, Larinaga obviously knows what he's doing in a tournament setting. Okay. Second question, any truth to this sort of conference USA narrative? Is this a league that deserved more bids based on their postseason performance? And, you know, is, is there, a, have, have you looked at comparative, um, sort of like where, where does conference USA fit into an overall narrative around conferences, I guess. Well, yeah, I mean, it's easy to see what they've done in these postseason tournaments and look back and say, you know, North Texas maybe should have been in UAB should have been in or whatever. And, you know, it's, they had, every team had their issues during the regular season, North Texas and their, one of their biggest, um, non-conference games against St. Mary's. They didn't have Reuben Jones or Tyler Perry. And then the whole team had the flu. And I remember listening to the um, pregame show with McCasland and him saying that they didn't practice a single second that entire week leading up to the St. Mary's game. They lost like 60 to 30 or something like that. You know, just one of the ugliest games of the year. So North Texas kind of had their, they were, you know, a fringe bubble team on Selection Sunday, but uh, they kind of lost their opportunity to really cement a, a at-large bid with that performance. Um, but, you know, that they have a distinct style on both ends of the court. They really limit possessions. And, you know, that's a reason why they're so good in tournament settings. We saw them beat Purdue two years ago doing exactly that, limiting possessions, executing well, and, um, you know, exposing Purdue's lack of mobility out on the perimeter. Um, and then UAB had some, some of the same issues with Jelly Walker getting hurt midway through the year. And then he, it took him another like week or two with his foot injury to um, really get, shake the rust off and feel comfortable on the foot again. So, you know, they both, both of those teams kind of um, let some opportunities through no fault of their own slip through their fingers in terms of really proving themselves in terms of them on selection Sunday. So, you know, it's no surprise to see them playing really well. It's a great conference, but um, they just lost their chances basically. And uh, FAU was just so dominant, you know, during the regular season and in the tournament. But in the, I think in the championship game of the conference USA, FAU might've been a slight underdog or it was pretty close to even against UAB. So there wasn't it. There's an anticipation of these two teams being pretty equal, correct? Yeah, I think um, if I recall, FAU opened as a favorite. Right angle ended up on UAB and flipped it the other way to like UAB a two point favorite. Yeah, pal. I got my popcorn. Okay, just sit out there and watch your movie, and I'll be done in just a few minutes. All right. So, um, yeah. Uh, yeah, like they were seen as basically equals. I think FAU opened as a favorite. They got flipped, you know, because of right angle. And UAB closed as a favorite. They got dominated, um, which, uh, you know, FAU had done all year. So, um, you know, that's it very easily. Could we could, there's, you know, an argument to be made that, that we could be seeing UAB or UNT doing this in the tournament, you know. They have all the pieces and they've obviously played well against lower competition in the NIT, but, um, you know, great top to bottom league. 
Do you think if let's say that the NCAA tournament were to happen again, like after what has happened right now, like there's a new 64 team field, would there be more conference USA teams in what would seed would Florida Atlantic be? And what would UAB slash North Texas be if they made it? So we're factoring in their NIT results. Exactly. We're factoring all the results to this point. Yeah. I think you'd see FAU like on the five or six line probably. And um, those other two, like, you know, 10, 11 play in game style. Okay. UConn overperforming. Obviously, they came into this weekend feeling everyone, I think, to the naked eye would have felt like they were going to be the odds on favorites. It's interesting that there wasn't a huge reaction by the market, meaning like if you had anticipated what the line and maybe it's how how well Miami had played against Texas or coming back. So maybe they're both of those things were fa- factored in. But do you find that Connecticut now is overrated by the market? Um, or do you think that they're this is like this is what they are? Yeah, I think you obviously can make a case that you'd be you know, buying UConn at the the peak of their powers right now. I don't see how they could play any better. Um, and they're running in in the final four to, you know, you could argue the second best team left and certainly the most explosive shot making team left in the tournament. So that's always dangerous, you know, um, that the team UConn is just playing as well as they possibly can, nowhere to go but down. And Miami shot making just can expose anybody it, you know, they do this again. They make shots against any type of defense that you throw at them. You try to trap the ball screen, hedge the ball screen, um, you know, do pressure them, whatever. These guys, they just make the right decision every single time. They have unreal like shot gravity with Pack, who can, um, you know, hit from 30 feet routinely. Uh, Miller just seems to find the right spot on the floor, no matter what the defensive coverage and make the right decision. And Wong is a great individual shot creator. And then you have just great role type players, like role player plus type guys like Omir, who just have a high motor and, you know, go after those 50-50 balls and offensive rebounds and extend possessions. So, you know, there's definitely a case to be made that Miami can win this game without question. And, um, you know, that could be you. UConn has already peaked, basically. So Jeff, can I, can I ask something here really quickly? Yeah. So I remember listening to, I think it was one of the press conferences where I forget which player said something, or might've even been a coach. It might've been Larinaga, something about how Miami's offense is unique. And so they tend to be better against teams the first time. And he thinks that's why they've maybe been good in tournament play. Um, What is so unique about the Miami offense? Yeah, that's absolutely correct. Um, Because they have, just different kinds of um, shot makers and shot creators. You know, Wong is big. He can create his own shot. Um, Jordan Miller is pretty much unlike any type of player left in the tournament because he's not, you know, an overwhelming um, physical um, player, but he just is so, his like offensive repertoire is so um, complete, so refined, and you can play him on the short roll. You can create offense with him in the middle of the floor. You can play him out of both posts, really. Uh, he just forces your four guy to defend in positions that they're not comfortable with. And that's, I think, what people kind of overlook with Miami is how good Jordan Miller is. 
and obviously, you know, not missing a shot in an elite eight game kind of puts you on everybody's radar. And obviously he's already a part of the big, a big part of the scout, but he's just such a difficult matchup. And um, even a team like UConn can run into trouble. And that's kind of where Miami can win this game is if Larinaga, if his offense is able to force Hurley's hand into playing his less offensively inclined players um, like Elaine or uh, Diara, if they have to get, you know, 20, 25 minutes, those two guys, both of them, then Miami can certainly win this game because Larinaga's for, forced Hurley's hand into um, trading some some offense for defense. San Diego State, their depth um, has been, you know, on display. Will it matter? Is that is that a, a big factor in what could be a short turnaround to the championship game? And and sort of like where where do you see? them i mean we might as well kind of jump into that preview of them versus fau um here fau is is uh two point underdog to san diego uh with a low total i think of 131 and a half how how do you see that game playing out yeah it's interesting from san diego state's perspective that this is the third straight um drop defense primary drop defense that they've played in this tournament they've gone from alabama creighton to now fau who all um, drop their big and all play just excellent um, drop defense. So the thing about San Diego State's offense is it isn't pretty, but they pedal in the mid-range. That's where they make their hay for better or for worse. That's what they like to do. And so, you know, we've seen that throughout this tournament and especially the last two games. It's, you know, extremely ugly for stretches because they're taking, you know, these mid-range jump shots with, you know, if you want to call it the overinflated ball or whatever. They, you know, they always start out not being able to hit them. Then the game gets physical. The game slows down. They win some extra possessions. uh, And then they start hitting some more of those mid-range jump shots. And all of a sudden, you know, you look at the clock. There's, you know, two minutes left and they're up by three or whatever. And you're you're not even really sure how that happened. Um, So, you know, FAU is a little more adaptable, though. Um, Golden, you know, he doesn't look like a guy who can really move his feet, but he does move his feet well, and they will switch up to hard hedging. They will do some other things, whereas Alabama almost exclusively drops Bediaco and Creighton almost exclusively drops Kulkbrenner. So this isn't as straightforward as a matchup um, for San Diego State's offense uh, because FAU is a little more um, nimble and a little more agile in the way they can switch up their coverages. So there, there will be that. They can force the ball out of, some of San Diego State's more um, ISO-inclined guys. And then once you do that, they kind of run out of offensive recourse. So I, you know, FAU can throw some things at San Diego State that's going to keep them out of the mid-range if they have to, but they're also happy to let them shoot in the mid-range if those shots are as long as those shots aren't going down. And do you see you see this as a pretty even matchup? I, I assume like this is the line is two, and I, it, it sounds like you think that. Um, from a matchup perspective, uh, you know, maybe San Diego State is able to score some because it's a drop defense that they've seen and been used to. How do you see FAU up against this sort of elite San Diego State defense? Yeah, so with FAU, the thing is they go one through four extremely small. They're always going to have four guards out on the court around Golden. And everyone has said that's going to be an issue. That's going to be an issue against Tennessee. I said that's going to be an issue against Tennessee. And, you know, Tennessee's physicality and all of that. And you saw Dusty May kind of um, prime the officials 
immediately after um, FAU won and knew he was going to face Tennessee. He was like, you know, we know it's going to be a rugby match. It's going to be physical. And so, you know, the game didn't actually play that physical uh, because I think May kind of, you know, set the tone there from the beginning. But, you know, they've been able to handle that throughout the tournament. And they're just so well coached. They're so um, cohesive defensively in terms of how they communicate that their size hasn't really been exposed yet. And so everyone keeps saying like, oh, this is the round where FAU's, you know, uh, lack of size one through four finally gets exposed. And maybe it does, you know, on, you know, uh, you know bigger, brighter lights for the final four or whatever. But FAU has proven they can handle physicality without question and actually use it against bigger teams with the way they're able to spread the court. They have the best spacing left in the tournament without question. And outside of UConn, I think they run the most um, complete set plays in terms of how they bring guys off a bunch of staggered screens and things like that and uh, just get open shots. So, you know, they use their lack of size as a positive in terms of how they spread the floor. All right. Um, UConn, Miami, it seemed to me like you were leaning a little bit with Miami's ability to score. I mean, this is a five and a half point spread. Um, total is a 149 and a half. It's, it's come down a little bit. Just listening to you, it sounded to me like if I were a betting man, I'd want Miami plus the points in the over. But what, tell me a little bit about you know, where I'm wrong there or right. No, I think you're right. Um, that, you know, UConn has some exploitable matchups for sure. Uh, with, uh, you know, like I said, if Hurley has to go to Elaine and Diara more, that means Miami's, you know, doing what they want to offensively. And then UConn loses some of their offensive edge as well. Um, but Miami team defense wise, they don't do much. They're not going to do much to be able to stop UConn. And uh, UConn, I, I noted the FAU runs a lot of great set plays. UConn is the best team left probably to begin the tournament. They were the best team at running these sets. They, you know, run Hawkins off so many screens. And I think he's like top five, maybe top three in terms of points scored on via off ball screen. So, you know, it's not like it's a, a straightforward offense that you have to be prepared for. They run a lot of actions at you. Um, and Miami's lack of size here in the front court could be an issue. Obviously, UConn's massive. You know, they run a lot of offense through the post. And it's not just back-to-the-basket scoring with Sonogo. We saw the way that he is uh, passing at a different level now. So bringing a double team to him doesn't really um, – cannot be as effective as it used to be with him. And the way they put him at the top of the key to create offense and uh, lift defenses and work behind them has been um, incredible. And it's no longer an easy option to just sag off Andre Jackson. That's been happening all year with UConn. Every team they play, they just stick their worst defender on Jackson, sag off him. And we saw that work for about, I don't know, 10 minutes against Gonzaga with a um, few trying to put hide Timmy on him. But then you just let Jackson, an elite athlete, have free run in the half court and do whatever he wants, cut wherever he wants, uh, and do, you know create offense wherever he wants doing that. And it puts just such an onus on the other four defenders to keep track of where Jackson is just because you're wanting to hide your worst defender. And Miami has a couple of worst defenders that they'll have to do that with. So, you know, it's um, it does seem high spread-wise a touch. 
And if it gets any higher, I would be inclined to take Miami. But as it, where it sits, I kind of lean UConn. All right. And then uh, Rufus has one more question before you leave, which is why did the Big Ten suck again? Same same old story. They're too rim-tethered, too paint-tethered. They uh, can't, you know, defend versatility, basically. They can't defend teams that are going to spread you out offensively. And that's what all the best teams do in March. Um, and we saw the one team who kind of plays that way, Michigan State, last the longest. And, I mean, it wasn't even that long, you know, uh, Sweet 16. So, you know, if if the team that didn't even win their conference, the, and it was the worst conference in the entire country, can beat your best team, that's just – there's clearly something going wrong with the way, you know, uh, the Big Ten is playing basketball as a league and just beating up on each other all year. And then just that's, I mean, that was kind of like, that has to be the ultimate, you know, um, alarm bell for all of these big 10 coaches with FDU beating Purdue, that if our, the best of the league who dominated more or less dominated the league can't even beat a team that didn't win the worst conference in the league, then what are we doing here? You know, what, what hope do we have playing this style of basketball? So, uh, you know, some things got to change there. And maybe Mike Rhodes is being hired at Penn State today is the uh, kind of, you know, uh, change that will spur the rest of the league. And I noted on Twitter with his hire that he either, um, you know, exposes season long all of these deficiencies that Big Ten teams have come March with his style of play or the league just collectively crushes him with their, you know, paint dominance. So we'll see. All right, Jordan, thanks for joining us. Uh, get yeah. back to your child, yeah. the most important job you have. Yeah, and thanks for we'll, having uh, me back. I appreciate it. Yeah, we'll talk to you probably again in a year. <laughs> Sounds good. All right, thanks. So that was Jordan Majeski. Um, I I just like... I like, you know, I get in this college basketball stuff and I like hearing the X's and O's piece and names and it, it sort of helps me get excited to watch. Like now I'm excited to watch, you know, Jordan Miller and whether he's able to have similar dominance against UConn. And now I'm excited to see like how, you know, UConn or Miami plays these ball screens and Hawkins ability to take these shots and get open and, um, yeah, I mean, I, I I still think it was interesting that he. So last week, Rufus, we we went through a similar process where he went through all eight games, and we actually had three picks based on his, you know, based on my sort of knowledge of the market and the numbers, in his in his uh, his analysis, and the three picks were UCLA against Gonzaga, basically at even, or it was like minus one or minus two at the time. It was Texas minus four against Xavier. And it was San Diego State plus the seven and a half against uh, against Houston. So we were two and one, almost went three and zero. Oh, obviously, um, you know you got your Gonzaga win, uh, but it's it's interesting because I listening to that come out of that feeling like I like Miami, and I actually feel like I like a Miami over parlay because if Miami is able to cover the handicap is that they've been able to score a lot. And we kind of feel like UConn scoring is a given. So if they don't cover and it, it's not likely to go over because it means that UConn's been able to stop them more, you know, it, it's hard, harder to see, 
you know, in a high scoring game, I think Miami has a really has a reasonable chance to cover. And so maybe for me, my pick of the week, not to jump the gun is, is kind of a fun Miami plus five and a half over, uh, you know, one forty nine and a half parlay. That's my, that's my one. I, I wonder, do you, is this UConn specific for Miami or is this something that you think has been there in general for them when they play to a faster tempo, are they better? Cause we could look quantitatively to sort of see if there has been that sort of correlation there. Yeah, if it's teams less, force them to slow this, down. This, they're yeah, going to underperform. In this, it's less of a tempo issue. It's more of a, the way that the, the way that I could see the game going from a standpoint of like the, the thesis here is that Miami is a lead at shot making. You had that insight, which I thought was interesting about the first time they play a team. So this is the first time they're playing. Well, I mean, team. that's not my insight. That's, but I mean, but that's the insight you brought up. That's, right. Cause I actually believe it or not, Jeff occasionally watch games and watch the post game commentary. Yeah. For the press conferences. So the idea would be like, okay, my, my handicap here is that Miami is going to be able to score against UConn. That's my handicap. Right. And that's the angle that I'm playing at. And they're going to be able to score on them more than what the quote unquote market thinks. So if that happens, the game in my mind is likely to go over and they're likely to cover. So I'm, if I'm able to parlay those and get plus money to prove or disprove this one handicap or this one hypothesis I have, that's the bet I want to make. Does that make sense? I, yes, that makes sense. So you know how I'm, for me, something like this is not something that I can easily falsify. And so I tend to, I tend not to gravitate towards these sort of qualitative type handicaps unless I can actually go back and quantify and see if there is these or if there are these types of correlations within a team. And that's why I was asking if we would expect to find something like that just looking at Miami overall during the season. Well, but I, that's why I was kind of asking him a little bit about like the ceiling of Miami. Like it would be interesting to see if they had a higher variance on their sort of offensive performance that you know like if if you have like maybe a higher distribution of 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 outcomes and like right now we're on the tail distribution on the high side of what they've been doing like that i maybe that's something you could like look at i think you're also going to want to look at different types of games because if they're playing you know a patsy non-conference game it's going to be a very different story but i would say i would like i would be interested in looking at games where they're sort of an underdog coming in or it's like a pick and that, and that UNC that one he brought is. up the UNC one he brought up was interesting because you know I think we were on UNC in that game they won Miami, they, Miami won by eight right no my yeah is Miami fe in February yeah yeah um and I think yeah it was an interest it was an interesting game um or maybe we were in Miami I can't even remember but I remember watching that game and thinking about that game a lot I also wanted to say that I'm Jeff, I'm especially surprised you wanted to cover college basketball in detail this week, given that you don't have a lot of rooting interests left in the Calcutta. Yeah, I know. It's sad. It was a very tough Calcutta for me. Oh, it was but thanks my Calcutta. Me. Jeff was looking so, so bad because we had wagered 229,000 and we had two teams left going into Sunday evening. So two teams still to play second round games. And that was Gonzaga and Miami. And so we could have been like in a very, very big hole had those two teams not won and then both won in the Sweet 16 and then Miami won in the Elite Eight. And now we're one win away from 
from a clawing all the way back to uh, profitability. Yeah, we were in a tough place. I mean, we I traded half of Houston for Alabama, which I thought was like a reasonable diversification. Well, it turned out and, to not matter. And it didn't matter. And, you know, I felt actually reasonable with Texas as my last team standing going in. Like they were the highest ranked team, um, you know, left at that point. And they had a 13 point lead in the second half against Miami, who, you know, and they're playing incredibly well. They're, they, they're very, they were missing their best defender, right? They're missing arguably their their most effective player. Um, you know, last ten games, Dylan Dsu okay. is like a big man. I mean, he was like, you know, that I don't. I mean, certainly he would have helped because the the minutes that uh, I think Cunningham or whatever that guy's name is that that kind of made that bad uh, that controversial foul and then took a took a couple of bad shots down the down the road. I you know whatever. It's I. I've would, had my dark moment with that, so we're over it. Would Texas, let's say Texas had won, like they eked out a close victory, Miami comes back, Miami maybe misses some free throws at the end. Is UConn or Texas a favorite? UConn's still a favorite, but only, yeah, about, but only about two points, I think. It's a, okay. they're, they're about a two-point favorite is my guess. Well, they, you know, they didn't really need to eke out anything, right, Rufus? Because ultimately, like that call that they made, the over-the-back, if it just had stayed as an over-the-back, Texas would have had two free throws with a minute left instead of you having two free throws with a minute left, right? That call was a four point swing with a minute left to go, which from a let from a win probability standpoint was probably a huge difference. Do you think it was the right call? I think it probably should have. I think it probably should have been a no call in all, in all, in all honesty, right? Because um, essentially what happened is the, the, it didn't affect who got the ball. The guy went more or less straight up, so it shouldn't have been over the back. And the other guy was just boxing out, and because the guy went out straight a guy's up, legs while he's in the air, but but it didn't. He, he the guy went straight up, and he was boxing out, right? Like so, th- there's like this. Oh. It's 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 a. I, I would say okay. very much like it should have been a no call because it didn't affect who got the ball, and if you just let that play go because no one really did anything, then you just you just let it go, right? It's not like. It's not like it's not like the guy he undercut the guy or anything like that. He went straight up and he was just boxing okay. out, and it just that it was unfortunate timing. Okay, last foul question. This is one that affected me as someone who had the San Diego State over um, the foul call in the la- final possession of that San Diego State game. It was San Diego State, right? Yeah, San Diego yeah. State. Yeah, um, yeah. With as time expired, in essence. I mean, I think it was good call or bad call. I think it was a call. I don't think calls need to be good or bad. I think it was a call. Like, I think, I think it was a call where it was a call. It it was, it it was, I mean, I think it was like a legitimate foul call, right? That doesn't make it a good call or a bad call. It makes it the correct call. Right. And so he had a hand on his waist and was like leaning towards him to block the shot. Right. So I think we've all seen that. We have zero idea how much he pushed him, right? The guy ended up on the ground. Like I was with you on the over. So like I would have loved for that not to have counted and for that, you know, to, to have gone to overtime and have the over come in. Right. I would love that. But like the reality was that to me, I didn't feel like I was robbed there. Right. So I think it was a fine. I think it was a fine call. You're behind the guy. You're trying to block a shot. Like you probably can't do that, right? Yeah. At that point, so it's not like good guarding position, right? So, anyways, okay. 
Rivas, do you want to give a quick pick and then get out of here? Um, sure. I, I'll give a pick. We have, a, I think, our final total of the year probably is the Florida Atlantic-San Diego State game. We took the over there, and I believe we really like it, so we probably like it even if it moves a few points. Right now, I'm gonna, I need to pull up what the number is at the moment so that I can actually give a decent number. Um, it looks like it is 131.5 most places. There's some 132s out there. Um, we would certainly still play that even at 133 or 134. We make it pretty far off. So nice. Hopefully they hit some mid-range shots, I guess. Yeah. Well, that one's probably obvious that 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 you're gonna like that one. So all right, everyone. Talk to you guys all again next week where we'll have a masters both Calcutta and podcast. So all the numbers in the simulated system that break down the data analytically driven. Media coverage of sports gambling is pathetic. The bottom line is watered down. It seems like they don't get it. Puppet are but the engine's running off a of leaded.